So do you start with dialogue? Or how do you, when do you, you know. How does it work itself into your novels? When, when I first start writing dialogue, I know that I don't quite know my characters yet. Um, it's kind of a, a mutually informing process where I can't really finalize my dialogue until I know who my characters are. Mm-hmm. But then I discover my characters through how they speak to each other. So the two movements kind of grow simultaneously. Hi, I'm Ben Marks, and this is GrottoPod. Today we have the first of two special podcasts about a new series of books called Lit Starts, which are available on September 10, 2019. Each book is filled with prompts to help writers practice the craft of writing character, dialogue, action, and humor. Each book also features a foreword by a grotto writer. Today we present two of those writers, Shanti Sacrin and Constance Hale, discussing their approach to writing character and dialogue. Enjoy. Hi everyone, my name is Shanti Sakrin. I'm a novelist, most recently the author of Lucky Boy, and I'm here with Connie Hale. Connie, you want to... Yeah, this is Connie Hale. I write under the byline Constance Hale, but I'm a Connie, and I wrote the book Writing Character. I'm a journalist primarily, although I secretly write poetry and used to write fiction. So when I'm thinking about writing, I don't think just in the nonfiction track, even though that's mostly what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Connie wrote the Lit Starts book on writing character, and I wrote the Lit Starts book on writing dialogue. And it seems like such a great pairing, right? Character and dialogue. You can't have one without the other. Exactly. Um, so, so how did you get roped into writing dialogue? How did that happen? Um, so I was, I was asked to write a book for the Lit Start series. And for those of you who are not initiated, the Lit Start series is a group of four books so far that are these great little bite-sized craft manuals that have a sort of craft essay at the beginning and then a ton of fun prompts on the topic that you're looking at. Dialogue, for example, would have like pages and pages of, of great dialogue prompts put together by members of the San Francisco Writers' Grotto. So I was asked to write dialogue, and I guess I volunteered to take on dialogue, because for me, that's one of the craft topics that I've thought the most about. It feels natural to me. It's something that I think I'm naturally pretty adept at, but I've also had to think specifically about what works and what doesn't work, especially when I'm teaching. Do you have any idea why you're naturally adept at it? Because it can be so wooden in some mm. relatively novice hands. So mm-hmm. do, do you have a clue as to why it's relatively easy for you? You know, I think that I've tried it so much for so long, and I'm sure there was a, a point in my career where I was wooden, you know, early on when I first started writing. I think it it was just tons of practice. It was finding that very fine balance of sounding natural without sounding over the top or hokey. Like having people talk to each other, maybe in a way that people from a certain region might talk or Mm -hmm. from a certain walk of life. 
without going overboard. But it's weird because it has to be really good dialogue. It's usually also concentrated. It's yeah. actually not natural. It reads as though it's natural. Right. But, but it's concentrated. And that's true. And the fluff and the unnecessary stuff is taken out. So mm-hmm. how do you, do you have like little red flags that you look for? Do you start writing the dialogue and find yourself paring it back or... Yeah, you know, one of the best pieces of advice that I got early on was from one of my professors, Alice McDermott, who's a novelist. And she said, use it, use dialogue really sparingly. Use it when you absolutely can't use anything else. Mm -hmm. And I think a reason for that is that to some extent, dialogue creates a standstill in action, action, Mm -hmm. in what characters are doing. If you think of your characters as people on a stage, when they start talking, they're in danger of standing still. And of course, we combat that in dialogue by adding little physical beats and having them, you know. Making it a scene. Yeah, making it a scene, having them take their hat off, having them sip their tea. Like Mm -hmm. we add these these physical movements in to keep their bodies alive. Mm -hmm. So something that I think is really interesting is that um, when we think dialogue, we think it's so important in fiction. Mm-hmm. And yet, actually, it's super important in nonfiction, but people don't think of that. Right. So typically when you're starting as a journalist, it's all about the quote, getting a good quote. Yeah. And so you develop an ear for that juicy, colorful quote. And the rule of thumb is don't quote someone saying something if you can say it better. Right. So if you can say it better in a description or paraphrase them, do it. Oh, right. Only use the quote when it's really juicy, really colorful. It says something about the character. Mm -hmm. It just stands out on the page. Mm -hmm. So as a young journalist, that's what you're told. And you're also given some rules like I remember they would always say when you're when they're teaching how to write leads, never start a lead with a quote unless the pope says shit. Right. So it it has to be something really startling and maybe funny. And maybe they won't even let us say that on air. But then as you develop as a journalist and mm-hmm. start writing, using more fictional techniques and start writing longer and longer stories, dialogue replaces quotes. Yeah. So it's really critical to, I remember one time I was reading a story about a tornado in Kansas. Mm-hmm. And what made the story was a Washington Post story. What made the story was the dialogue. Yeah. There were actually two characters sifting through the remnants of their home and talking to each other. And wow. the dialogue became part of that nonfiction story. So it's interesting to me that people often don't think about dialogue when they're mm-hmm. thinking about nonfiction, but it's mm-hmm. just as important. Absolutely. A little trickier because you can't change their words. Yeah. Or you can only, what my rule for dialogue is I can take things out, but I can't add anything in. Right. So I can't So you can, you can subtract. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just to make things a little cleaner. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what you do in fiction anyway. Like you were saying, it's distilled. It's mm-hmm. concentrated. We don't put voices on the page that sound like voices in the real world because real world voices are just all over the place. They're a mess. Often banal. Yeah. The other thing that's kind of interesting to me that you were saying that resonates with nonfiction, too, is the idea of the dialogue within a context and making it, well, in in narrative nonfiction, we call it cinematic. Mm -hmm. So that whole notion of the person taking a sip of of a cup of tea or putting on a hat or doing something. So the the importance of combining action with dialogue so that you're, you're really creating a scene. Yeah. And making it not seem like everything stops. Yeah. Partly through those little gestures. And, of course, again, we can't invent them. So you have to be sort of taking notes at the same time as you're 
listening and writing down the dialogue, you're also taking notes right. about physical, the, the little things that people do. Because everybody has physical tics or, or um, characteristics, characteristic actions. Yeah. Kind of blending those with the dialogue. Yeah, the unspoken can be as important in dialogue as the spoken. And in the Lit Starts forward, I talk about this scene I love from The Godfather 2, where Fredo and Michael are talking in the boathouse. And there's so much happening there that is not spoken. You know, you, you think about the lighting, you think about the room, you think about who's sitting and who's standing. And there's so much that the director tells you about power and who has the final say and who is, is struggling in that moment and and who is not. So how did you pick, um, in writing, we had to write 2,000 words for this Mm -hmm. essay. So that, the essay itself had to be this incredible distillation of everything we think and know. Like, how did you decide what to include or did, did, how did you, how did you figure out what to say? You know, I think it, it was a process of many drafts of figuring, figuring out what was most important to me. And I had to really look at the big movements. You know, there's so much you can say about character and about dialogue. Like, you can write books and books about these topics. But I put into my essay the larger movements that went beyond just the words. I think that's maybe a uniting theme in in everything I wrote about dialogue. It's not so much about the words. It's about everything surrounding the spoken word. That's like attitude. It's physical detail it's movement so a lot of what i talk about actually involves the nonverbal even though it all feeds into the, context the verbal yeah around the dialogue yeah mm-hmm. mine was kind of tricky because mm-hmm. um, mine was the first essay that we wrote we had the idea for this series of books and mm-hmm. i said well i can write one on character because i had just taught a class on character and uh, writing profiles i write a lot of profiles as a journalist it's my favorite form really so I'm fascinated about how to nail a character and how to put someone on the page and make them seem alive. So I volunteered to do it, but at first we called it Writing Faces. Huh. So the essay that I wrote originally was much more, was much narrower. It wasn't about character generally. It was just about faces. So then I had to take that essay and figure, you know, figure out what I could save because yeah. a lot of times when people think about writing character, they stop there. So they just describe someone's face, like their right. hair or their eyes. You know, they, they that's very much the way people think about character. But just in the same way as you're saying dialogue involves all these other things, character, there's movement, there's the, the way someone walks, there's uh, sometimes you have two characters. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're playing one person off of another. So anyway, that was sort of interesting, taking something that originally was writing faces and then figuring out how to what to retain and then how to shift the focus. Yeah. So you do talk about physical attributes like the face. And then what did you do to go beyond that? You know, I kind of went face, body, mm-hmm. <laughs> movement, I kind of and then total total being kind of. Mm-hmm. So that that's how I organize the essays. It's start really it's starting with in character descriptions I think starting with vocabulary because mm-hmm. one thing that I've noticed both in editing and with myself, but especially when I edit, people tend to use completely common and boring descriptors when they're describing character. So my favorite example is one time I edited a book that involved a lot of doctors Mm -hmm. because the main character was was, uh, battling cancer and seeing a lot of doctors as a a result. And every single doctor had salt and pepper hair and a beard Mm -hmm. or was gray 
tall and bearded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And it was it's sort of, I had said to the guy, you got to make these people, these characters, all these names more than names. Uh, can you write a little character description? And he wrote virtually the same thing for each character. Right. So that I think is really common. People just yeah. don't go beyond the most, you know, black hair or yeah. just, you know, the most common details. So the first thing is to push and make those you know, use words that are, are what I call twofers or threefers, where you're getting a lot of kernels of information in, one, in each word. Yeah. So that's how I kind of built it, you know, starting small and then after you get the face and, and you get it much more detailed than you might have started, what does the voice sound like? So mm-hmm. also sensory, you know, just close your eyes and listen to the person's voice. Mm-hmm. What is the sound of a person's voice? A lot of times people don't include that in a character description. How does that person laugh? Mm-hmm. We all laugh so differently. And then how does the person move through the room? And that, then I started using metaphor and, you know, compare the person to an animal or compare the person to a car. Like, you know, if there were a car, what would, you know, what, if the person were a car, what kind of car would that person be? And right. starting to think metaphorically about people. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you know, the ineffable, that kind of like, what's the person's spirit? What's, mm-hmm. what's actually the character? Anyway, it's fun. And there's a ton of prompts that elicit that yeah. in the book as well. Yeah. Yeah, the ineffable, the spirit, that I think that plays really well into character counterpoint when you have not just your one character, but you look at how they affect mm-hmm. other people, how they interact. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I had a really fun, um, I know you teach uh, mm-hmm. as well, and I used to teach high school, so I had to teach how to do compare and contrast essays. Mm-hmm. So that was such a mainstay of writing instruction in, say, comp- at the composi- in composition classes. And... The essence of a compare-contrast, what makes a good compare-contrast is the two people or the two things have a lot in common, mm-hmm. and they're completely different, mm-hmm. right? So that's what's so fun. I actually have a piece of, a little sketch of my own of two contractors yeah, whom, who used to work in my building, and we called them Irish Mick and English Mick. And one was named John Michael, and the other was named Michael John. Okay. And, and it's literally, it's just a compare-contrast. It's sort mm-hmm. of like, how can I play them off of each other mm-hmm. to bring out, I mean, there's, they have so much in common. They're working together. They're partners. Their names are the same. One's mm-hmm. Irish, one's English. They both have accents. And yet they're completely different. So that right. can be, I, th- I think that's a great way of working character too, is sort of finding someone else in that point counterpoint or that, yeah. the contrast between two people who on the surface would be the same yeah. in certain hands. Certain people would describe them using the same words. Right. Yeah. It's finding what's memorable about a person so do you start with dialogue or how do you when do you you know how does it work itself into your novels when when I first start writing dialogue I know that I don't quite know my characters yet Um, it's kind of a a mutually informing process where I can't really finalize my dialogue until I know who my characters are Mm -hmm. but then I discover my characters through how they speak to each other so the two movements kind of grow simultaneously. It, it sometimes starts out just sounding like me. Mm-hmm. Or my tendency when I'm not quite sure what I'm doing is to neutralize a character to make someone like, you know, likable, approachable. Just I, I socialize my characters. I make them socially well-adjusted. Why do you do that? I think it's a common, I think it's a human impulse. We go through the world trying to... Fit in. Fit in and be acceptable and, and not make waves. Mm-hmm. And Is it also because you want them to be sympathetic? Or does that not play into it? Um, yeah, that could be part of it. 
that could be part of it. And then as the story goes, I, f- I figure out which of my characters actually aren't sympathetic or shouldn't make life easy for their other characters. So it takes me a while to figure that stuff out. Mm-hmm. It all It's like when you get to know people. Mm-hmm. You know, if you move into a house full of people, everyone starts off quite amiably. Yeah. <laughs> and then you figure out, like, who's going to rub who in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So in Lucky Boy... How did you find the voice of... Uh, can you just talk about that a little bit? Or did, was there a moment when you knew you had it? Or something... So all of a sudden you could hear them or the way they'd speak? And so with Lucky Boy, you know, one of my characters was a young Mexican woman whose native language was Spanish, not English. And so when she was speaking... When she was speaking Spanish, she was speaking as as I would, you know, as I would speak English. She was all completely fluent and, and so on. When she was speaking English, I had to find a balance between fluency and, and a good flow and the fact that English was not her first language. So she wasn't speaking in the same way that the American native English speakers were. I, I also wanted to, I also wanted to bring across her intelligence, her spirit, her energy. So it was, it, it, there was another wrench thrown in there with the language. But, but that's sort of complicated because she's actually, when she's speaking in Spanish, mm-hmm. it's actually written in English. Yeah. So she's, so you're giving her a more fluent voice Yeah. in those moments when she's speaking to someone who, in Spanish. Yeah. More fluent voice, but it's in English. It's in English. Yeah. And then when she's speaking in a context where she's speaking English with someone else, Right. Oh, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. So I had to sort of feed in her intelligence with the knowledge that she wasn't fluent in that language mm-hmm. in those moments. So do you do you listen to people? Do you eavesdrop a lot? I think so. I've always done that. You know, I've always been sort of the quiet one. I think a lot of writers are. And being from a family of immigrants, my parents were immigrants. I think I paid a lot of attention to mm-hmm. language and how people formed phrases, how people used or misused idioms, how people negotiated phrasing and what fluency was and and the sort of privileges that come with fluency. How about you? Well, I often have, when I'm teaching character, I Mm -hmm. often have people go as an exercise, go and eavesdrop on a conversation. Mm -hmm. And just because I think so much of writing character Mm -hmm. is acute observation. Mm. So we go through the world and our all of our observational skills are not turned on usually. Right. We're just we ha- we're in our heads, we're going and doing something, we're not really listening, watching, paying attention. So that's where I start to say, you know, what well black hair, but but really what what makes her black hair different from his black hair or yeah. say more what the the way someone's dressed you know how can you how can you portray that more with more specificity and that's largely it's it's partly having a good vocabulary but it's mostly observing more closely mm-hmm. most of mm-hmm. us just don't look that carefully right so if you the the longer you look the more you notice yeah so i think the same thing is true in listening to the way people talk so we don't usually eaves, well we do eavesdrop in a sort of gossipy way but to me, eavesdropping is just a practice of forcing yourself to listen more mm-hmm. when people talk. And then writing it down, when you when you eavesdrop and you write it down, you see how mundane most conversation is. That's useful and helpful yeah. in understanding character. Like So first, just tuning in in a different way, listening, listening more closely, mm-hmm. trying to pair words with the sensations that you're getting or, or hearing or feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I find with dialogue, as with character, 
you're filtering it and, and focusing it, but you can't make it too pretty. You don't want it to be too tidy. Yeah. I always I tell my students, if someone asks a question, the person they're talking to doesn't have to answer that question. Mm-hmm. You know, we're constantly jetting being off, uh-huh. being oblique, going off on tangents, not answering the question that we're asked. Mm-hmm. So you can stay true to, to life in those ways mm-hmm. without all the ums and ahs and, and backtracking and, mm-hmm. you know, spinning, spinning around that, that we do in real life. And I think maybe the same goes for character, too, right? Giving a character that, that raw edge. You know, the, what I say w- with character is my work, if I'm doing a profile, for example, mm-hmm. isn't done until I figured out the paradox of the person. Mm. So just as you were saying, if you're living in a house full of roommates, everybody's kind of nice at first, observing social norms, and Mm -hmm. you're just, you're not seeing the whole person. And that's true in interviews, too. So, so often people do profiles or write about characters in a, let's just say, in a journalistic way. Mm -hmm. And you got to do more than an interview. Because someone's going to be on their best behavior in an interview. They're going to be minding their words. They're going to be thinking carefully about their answers. So if you have... No other opportunity, the very least you do is hope they leave the room for a second to take a phone call or to go to the bathroom and you get to sort of observe their desk and their bookshelf and just write as many right. notes as you can about this, the, the, the things that are true to them, yeah. that they haven't manipulated or they're not, they're not presenting a certain picture of themselves to you. I love it when someone picks up the phone and has an impromptu conversation when I'm in the room because then you hear how they talk to someone else. Yeah. And that's when I eavesdrop because... They're talking naturally and spontaneously, not right. in a Q&A situation. But still, it takes a very long time to start to sense the paradox. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I look. I don't so much look at it as pretty and non-pretty as much as contradictions. Yeah. If I can see contradictions in someone, if I can start to see contradictions in someone, I feel like I'm I'm getting at their character. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to see who they really are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then those very contradictions often become the theme of the whole story. Right. But with a nonfiction profile, what do you do if that contradiction is really unflattering? You you, you uh, present you, it. You write it, yeah. You present it. There are contexts, if you're an investigative reporter, there are contexts where you're trying to show someone in um, an unflattering or true or unvarnished light. Mm-hmm. I think especially Gail Sheehy, the reporter Gail Sheehy is wonderful on this because she's interviewed so many celebrities and politicians and they are so accomplished at doing interviews and Mm. at presenting a public self and managing that public self. So I think if I remember correctly, she spent something like 100 hours with each subject. She used to write these great personality profiles for Vanity Fair. Uh Or maybe she talked to 100 people. Anyway, you talk to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so you don't, again, don't just rely on the interview. Right. Even if that's all you have, observe everything about them. The mm-hmm. books on their shelves, the picture on the desk, the, and ask them questions about those things. Mm-hmm. And try to sort of upset the natural rhythm of the Q&A. You know, just okay. um, ask them something unexpected. But then you talk to other people. Yeah. And what was the thing that, you know, give me a story that where you really were surprised by his reaction to something or what's your favorite memory of this person? Or sometimes you might you wouldn't necessarily say what's the most un, you might say what's the most unflattering thing about this person? Right. What's the thing about this person that only his mother knows? Yeah. Or her mother knows. 
You definitely try to get those things. If it's a hit piece, I mean, I don't, I don't usually write hit pieces. I'm usually writing pieces about people who are doing important things and I think are inspirational in some way and right. worth reading about, worth, you know, you can learn something. Or So if you're an investigative journalist, you're trying to find those facts that are maybe paradoxical or contrary to the person's narrative about himself. Yeah. So do you? So what do you think about paradox? Is that something you think about? So I mean, that's this, just my little trick, you know. Yeah. Kind of if I've if I've gotten the paradox of someone, I've yeah, and that translates pretty well to fiction. You know, you want to look for the dark side of your good guy. You want to look for the sympathy in your so-called villain. You know, if you have a nemesis to your main character who you're exploring deeply. You, it's not interesting to just have like a good guy and a bad guy. That's mm-hmm. that's good and evil are boring mm-hmm. in and of themselves. What we look for, you know, if I think of like the great sort of villains of literature and, and film, they all have something that they loved, something that they would die for. This is what's interesting to us. If you look at Darth Vader, mm-hmm. we're not interested in him because he's this like Lord of Darkness or whatever. We're interested in him because he once loved a woman. He once had real love. He had children who are our heroes in in that story. My favorite character is Heathcliff from Wuthering Hmm. Heights. He is so complicated because he... I haven't haven't read that book in about 40 years, so So I'm trying to remember. He's mysterious. He's 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 mysterious. He's a real jerk. I mean, in his grown adult self, you know, he's vindictive, he's miserly, he's rude, he's unkempt. But as he was growing up, his defining characteristic was this great love for the heroine of the book, Catherine. He was deeply in love with her. And halfway through the book, she dies, and it, it rips his heart out. And that's that's why half the women in the world are in love with Heathcliff, because of this complexity mm-hmm. in his character, this paradox that he holds. That's what we look for. And the same goes for your sympathetic characters. I mean, a sympathetic good guy is is pretty boring until mm-hmm. you find that darker layer. So does that, does that play itself out in dialogue for you, that, that particular thing where you're trying to find... Is that part of dialogue? Yeah. Dialogue you know, with dialogue, as with character, you want to give the reader something to chew on. The reader has come to you for a story, so you don't want to give them the obvious. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to describe your doctor with, like, a white lab coat and a, and a salt, salt and pepper, pepper hair. <laughs> yeah. You want to give the reader something that's worth their time. Mm-hmm. So what is it about this doctor? You know, maybe there's his shifty eyes. Maybe his his gaze lingers too long on the patient character. You know, you want to give the reader something to hold on to. And with dialogue, you can work with that. You can make someone a little reticent. You can make them say not quite enough. You can create that sort of space of mystery around mm-hmm. a person. You can suggest that maybe they're not telling the whole truth. There's a lot you can do to sort of add these layers. So Francis Ford Coppola, I mean, you mentioned the scene from The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Do you have, do you have, who do you think is a master of dialogue? Of writers that I love. I often go to Zadie Smith. She's great at, at character counterpoint, at the dynamics mm-hmm. between characters. Her dialogue is very lively. It's alive. It communicates who's holding the power in any given situation and, and who isn't. And I often teach a section from The Secret History by Donna Tartt. 
there's this one scene that has every character. It has like five characters talking all at once and they're all doing their own thing. And because we're in the thick of the story of that novel, the reader is able to understand exactly what every motion, every small utterance actually means. Like there's so much undercurrent. There's so much that is unsaid that, that is doing a great deal of storytelling. So I love Donna Tart as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how about you? In Sin and Syntax, my book on, mm-hmm. on writing, I have a couple of passages that I've read hundreds of times out loud because mm-hmm. I think they're so great. And one of them is a character description by Alec Wilkinson in The New Yorker. And The New Yorker is so fun to read if you're in, into character because they run long profiles. Yeah. They do long character personality sketches. And there's usually... What's fun about New Yorker profiles is usually in a very predictable spot, usually on page two, column four, at the beginning of the second section. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of in a predictable place. There will be a pretty compact character description. Alec Wilkinson is kind of an old-style New Yorker writer, and he once wrote a profile of an IRS revenue agent, Mm -hmm. a guy who busted people for producing moonshine. Hmm. And his name is Garland Bunting, and it's just the most brilliant character, I think, because it does everything. It, it tells the crazy things he does. So you see him in action. It has a very tight description of his face. It, it, I was thinking of it when you were speaking a couple of minutes ago because it says, Garland is, I forget, was it, uh, five? trying to remember exactly how it goes a medium height and portly. Mm-hmm. He has eyes that are clear and close set and steel blue. Mm. That's kind of it. Of medium height, totally generic, mm-hmm. and portly. Mm-hmm. Portly is such a great word because mm-hmm. it suggests body type, but it suggests a kind of liveliness or... A certain attitude. Yeah. yeah. So it's a great word. If you have few words, great one to choose. And then he has eyes that are clear and close set and steel blue. And the steel blue is fantastic mm-hmm. because what he's really describing is his spine of steel mm. through his eyes. So it's that yeah. one of those... It's, he has steel blue eyes, but he's chosen a detail that gets right at the guy's stealiness. This guy does all this crazy stuff to catch people, and he starts with that, so it's entertaining, but then you get the core of the guy. And then there's some great dialogue, a fantastic quote. So I would say, you know, in general, like those New Yorker writers, they're given the space yeah. to do a certain kind of work, and it's very it's wonderful to read it. So it seems like a great way to approach character from that point of view is to work with limitation, to Mm -hmm. work with a shorter format even, you know, whether it's a poem or whether you're writing a profile, even of your fictional character, to give yourself maybe a thousand words to try to capture this person. Not even, a paragraph. Or a paragraph. You should be able to do it in a paragraph. Yeah. I recommend that people have a character sketchbook. Mm -hmm. So just as an artist carries around a sketchbook and draws interesting people he they encounter during the day mm-hmm. I think writers should do the same thing the limitation of just that page if it's a little moleskin the limitation of that page right how much can I get it there yeah. so the the lit starts are fun because I think character and dialogue are pretty interconnected and really elements of of the craft and then I would say action is too so mm-hmm. they're writing action writing character writing dialogue and then the last one is writing humor yeah which Which i really want to read and it's kind of a departure because 
it's not nuts and boltsy in the same way. It's, right. it's, it's kind of a genre, and yet I also feel that so much humor comes through in dialogue. Yeah. So much humor can come through in a character sketch if you're writing it. Yeah, and if you know what you're doing. Yeah. And it livens up the writing so much. So the books are cool. They're, they, they, um, they're light. They're easy to put in your... They're your, bite-sized. Yeah, easy to put in your backpack or your purse or whatever you carry. They come out September 10th. Four of them come out together and are going to be featured in some bookstores as a set. Yeah. And then in February, there are two more that are coming out. And then the next two are writing memoir and writing, I think, fantasy or science fantasy. So those are those those will follow close on the heels and we'll be trying we'll be having different live writing sessions where we get to try out the prompts on people which should be a lot of fun yeah. um, to see how different people use different prompts as a departure point. Yeah. And these prompts come from a huge group of writers. So we have all kinds of different styles mm-hmm. and approaches like it's not just me and Connie. It's, right. There are there are many creative great minds going into these books. Well, that's our show for today. Grottopod is concocted at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco, and it's produced by Susie Gerhardt, Daniel Pierce, Beth Weingarner, and George Higgins. Music is by Sugartown. Please review and subscribe to Grottopod wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ben Marks. Thanks for listening.